Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to go back over some verses that we read last week and consider them in more detail, and then add some new verses also. Genesis 1, we'll look at verses 26 through 30 here in just a moment. You know, when I was mapping out this sermon series, I couldn't believe that I was marking out something like seven weeks for the first three chapters. Never in all of the preaching I've done had I ever taken any text so slowly. And now I feel overwhelmed by how fast we're going. It is unbelievable how much richness there is here in this narrative history of God's creation. So let us continue this morning reading from God's inerrant word, the only rule for faith and for practice, the only thing by which we can know what to believe and how to live with absolute certainty. Hear now the word of God, beginning in verse 26 of chapter 1 with some commentary along the way. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Two points. First, the divine expression of plurality jumps out whenever we read this, and it deserves some attention. Many, many explanations have been put forward over the centuries. Let me address only the two most serious contenders to explain this. The traditional Jewish explanation, and one which receives a lot of airtime, even among Christian scholars, is that this is the use of the majestic plural, the royal we. The problem with that, well, this verse is about man, not about God. And there are countless texts in Scripture which stress the majesty of God, and none of them use this figure of speech. So why insert into a passage which is principally about the importance of man a comment about the majesty of God? Reading this as a royal we or majestic plural is out of place. The more probable explanation comes from having the advantage of standing at the end of the story and looking back. We can look at Genesis 1 through the lens of passages like John 1 and Colossians 1 which speak of the Son's role in creation. We can look through places like Ezekiel 37 and Job 33, which describe the Spirit as the life giver. Thus, we recognize this is an early hint at the Trinity, God's plural oneness, as it were. We would be hard-pressed, I admit, to build the doctrine of the Trinity from this verse alone, But in light of the rest of Scripture, seeing the Trinity in this verse is the best explanation available to us. We will talk a little bit more about that in Sunday school later today, so there's another reason to stay. Our second point from this opening line is the name man. As we saw last week, naming things is an act of dominion over them. So what we see is that God called us man. Male and female together, he named man. We recognize in the LGBTQ plus community, it's rebellion against God when it throws off God's labels of male and female. So in that same vein, do we risk a similar rebellion by throwing off man altogether? I'm not saying we can never use he, she, they in order to be gender sensitive or that we can not speak of mankind or even humanity. 
But if throwing off God's label on our gender is rebellion, ought we not be careful in throwing off his label for all of us, man? In this sermon in deference to God's word, rather than society's pressure, I'm going to use man primarily in the way it is used here to refer to all human beings, not those who are male. I will still sprinkle in humanity and mankind occasionally. Picking up in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Two quick notes. Historically, much ado has been made about the subtle differences between image and likeness. But that is unwarranted. A careful Bible study and and archaeology uh, have demonstrated together that image and likeness really are synonyms, and we will use them interchangeably. There is no need for a distinction between them. My second note is more substantial and theological. Both male and female were created in God's image. God, in his word, refers to himself with masculine pronouns, he, his, him, and for that reason, I will as well. But he is not male. Jesus, though revealed in the flesh as a male, reminds us that God is a spirit. He is not physical. He is not gendered. Remember, unlike all the other ancient cosmologies, there is no goddess set in contrast to the God of Genesis. And that's because God is not male and thus does not need a female counterpart. Throughout the scripture, masculine anthropomorphisms are used to describe God. He is a father. He is a husband. But feminine figures of speech are also applied. Isaiah 66 says God cares for his children like a mother cares for her children. Isaiah 49 goes further saying God cares, God's care is like a nursing mother. By way of his parables, Jesus compared God to a housewife who goes looking for her lost coin. And when expressing his concern for Jerusalem, he even compares himself to a hen gathering her chicks. God is not a boy. He is not a male. But neither is he female, nor does this make him transgender, cross-gender, polygender, etc. Our problem at this point is the application of gender language to God at all. Whenever the categories of reality don't match the categories of our language, it creates problems and misunderstanding. If there's ever been a place for the gender-neutral use of the plural pronoun they... It might be with regard to the genderless spirit God who is triune in his being. And yet he uses he, and so shall we, while keeping in mind that he isn't a he. The image of God is expressed in humanity through both males and females equally, because God is neither male nor female. He is in a category unto himself. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the 
earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. Move down to chapter 2 and verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4. Let's pick up there. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground." Note the implications this has for our interpretation of chapter 1. In the very next verse, I haven't read it yet, God is going to make man upon an earth which is plantless, or nearly so. But Genesis 1.11, day 3, said that God ordered vegetation to appear, and it was so. So, did God create man on day 3 before the plants? Doesn't seem likely, does it? So perhaps the statement, and it was so, did not mean, and it was so immediately. But in that case, maybe the whole account of creation permits longer time periods than we previously imagined. Either way, interpreting Genesis 1 just got more complicated. Anyway, having described the barrenness of the land, Moses goes on in verse 7 to say this. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. There is wordplay here, which is lost in English, and it is important for the rest of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The word used here for man is the word Adam the word which will later become his proper name. So in biblical Hebrew, Adam can mean person or human. It can mean a male person, a man, or it can refer to a particular male person by that name, Adam. But the bigger point is this. The word for man is Adam, and the word in the same verse for ground is Adamah. Now, Hebrew doesn't do rhyme like we do in English, but it does a lot of this kind of sound-alike word play. The word for man is Adamah, and he is made out... I'm sorry, the word for man is Adam, and he is made out of the Adamah. He is made from the ground. There is a play on the sounds of ground and man, which are lost in English but are important in the Hebrew and will be important in later sermons. Verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, that is to the east of where Moses and Israel were in the wilderness of Sinai. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Oh, there's going to be so much more about that in the coming weeks. Down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, and keep it. Lord God, put us in the midst of that garden and let us see our role as the pinnacle of your creation. Let us see our place as your image bearers. Let us understand what you have created us to be. We pray this in the one who bears your likeness perfectly, Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. A rat is a pig is a dog 
is a boy. A rat is a pig is a dog is a boy. That famous equivalency was first stated years ago by Ingrid Newkirk, president of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA. A rat is a pig is a dog is a boy. It's a statement that all animate creatures are equal and equivalent. You've probably heard it in more straightforward language, like someone expressing the defense of animal rights. For example, you have no business eating animals or using them for medical research. They have rights just like you do. There it is, that equivalency again. Or perhaps you have heard someone speak of speciesism. I can't even say the word. Too many S's in there. Speciesism. The great political sin of considering humans as being above other species. But the equivalency of animals to humans creeps in in more subtle ways. For example, when someone speaks of their pet as being not merely a part of the family, but as our child. A rat is a pig is a dog is a boy expresses an all too common sentiment, but it is not one shared by God. God sets man apart from rats, pigs, and even dogs. Let us make this case. Let me make this case first simply by pointing out this. The whole of the Bible, God's word, is an account of human history not rat, pig, or dog history. More than that, this Genesis 1 and 2 account of creation sets mankind apart from all the other creatures. So this morning we're going to dive into this with three goals. We want first to establish that this text really does set, set mankind's creation apart from the rest of creation. Second, we want to be sure that the image of God can, uh, 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 extends beyond Adam and Eve. It's not that were Adam and Eve uniquely created in God's image, or does that apply also to their offspring? And did it survive the fall? Is post-fall sinful man still the image bearers of God? Thirdly, we want to explore what it means to be the image bearers of God. Both what it means from, a, from an ontological uh, viewpoint, what does that mean about us as beings, but also from a practical viewpoint, what does that, how does that affect how we live? So today we're going to look at man's creation and the image of God as the ultimate pinnacle of God's creative acts. We're going to pursue, we're going to explore whether or not the image of God persists past the fall and onto the descendants of Adam and Eve. And we're going to look at the meaning and the practical effects of the image of God in us. So first, let's do away with any notion this text is not extolling the significance of man's creation. Let's quickly make the literary case for why we understand man's creation as the zenith of God's creative work. Seven indicators taken pretty quickly. Man's creation is the culminating act of an ascending process. Man's creation is the culminating act of an ascending process. Days one, two, and three establish spaces and places. Days four, five, and six then populate those spaces and places. But in day six, man is not lumped in with the other occupants of the land. Rather, his creation is set apart 
and marked out as separate from the other day six creatures. Man's creation is the culminating act of an ascending process. Number two, man's creation is not preceded by the impersonal let there be. Notice that man's creation is not preceded by the impersonal let there be. It is different in that regard. Number three, man's creation is preceded by divine deliberation. It's not preceded by the impersonal let there be, but it is preceded by divine deliberation. It's an anthropomorphism. Many of you know that I'm a DYIer. I like to tackle projects around the house and do it myself to the degree that I'm able. Now, many of those smaller projects, I just jump right in without thinking twice about it. But when I do a big project, I stop and I contemplate and I reflect and I consider and I wonder and I hope that I've thought it all through. Now, God doesn't need to hope he's thought everything through. But this anthropomorphism is meant to demonstrate that God stops and deliberates because creating man is a big deal. Man's creation gets a longer treatment. Number four, man's creation gets a longer treatment. Eleven verses for days one, two, and three combined. Twelve verses for the creation of man that we read this morning. And that does not include the unique circumstances surrounding Eve, which we will get to in three weeks. Man's creation gets a longer treatment. Number five, all things in the creation have a place created for them, but man's place, Eden, gets special attention. The creation of Eden is set apart from the creation of the other places and spaces because man's creation is set apart from the other creatures. Number six, at his creation, man is assigned a unique task. The sun is said to rule the day and the moon to rule the night, but these are inanimate entities and clearly bounded and defined. Man, and only man, is to have dominion over all the earth. And then God specifically lists the animate creatures that fall under man's dominion. At his creation, man is assigned a unique task. Much more on that next week. Number seven, in God's image. We are created uniquely in God's image. And this is the most important point of all. No matter what that means, even if you don't understand what it means to be in the image of God, you do understand that to be created in God's image is a big deal. To be like him in any way, shape, or form is a big deal. The text of Genesis 1 and 2 make clear that a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy, couldn't be more false. The creation of human beings, the creation of man, is set apart from the rest of creation. So secondly, that distinction, does it continue beyond Adam and Eve? Is it for them alone, or does it continue on to their posterity? And if it continued to their posterity, did it survive the fall? Did the fall so badly mess up human beings that we no longer bear the image of God? You see the point. If only Adam and Eve are image bearers, then we don't need to spend a lot of time on this because we ain't them. So did it survive the fall? Flip over a few pages to Genesis 9, verse 6. Genesis 9, verse 6. 
We're going to come back in a few weeks, actually a couple months at this point, and talk about this in some more detail. But right now, Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. The flood came upon the earth by virtue of mankind's far-reaching sin. Nevertheless, the image of God persists to such an extent that it is guarded by God through capital punishment. Now listen, as I read James 3, chapter, uh, verse 9, James 3, 9, speaking of our evil tongues, James the wise writes this, with it, our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. James saw people, present tense, made present tense in the likeness of God. And for that reason, we should not curse those men and women. Both verses have additional significance for future sermons. But for now, they establish that the image of God survived the fall. Mankind is the zenith of God's creation, marked by our being created in his image, and that image survived even the devastation of our sin. So the Imago Dei persists, and it is important. So let's take a look at what it is and what it means. You know a concept is important when it is spoken of in Latin as often as it is in English. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Well, the image of God is another such topic. A moment ago, I just referred to it as the Imago Dei. Imago Dei is Latin for God's image. The concept is so central and so important that scholars have taken to referring to it in Latin. And by the way, scholars don't do that just to be inaccessible to the layperson. There's a good reason for it. Latin being a dead language doesn't evolve. It doesn't change. So what words meant 500 years ago in Latin, they still mean today. And it helps avoid confusion so that we can talk with precision about these important topics. It's why theologians and philosophers and even we lowly scientists still appeal to Latin every once in a while. So the Imago Dei is a big deal. It marks us as the pinnacle of God's creation and it has survived the fall. So let's take a look at what it is. What does it mean to be in the image of God? First, some of the ontological implications. That is, what does it say about our being, our existence, about our essence? Really what we're addressing here is what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be a human being? First, to be in the image or likeness of something is to be not that something. We are not God. A thing and its image are necessarily distinct from each other. A picture of a sunset is not the sunset. A beautiful painting of a landscape is not the landscape. And when I've offended Becky, and you'll have to really stretch your imaginations to picture this happening... But when I've offended Becky, I cannot the next day bring her a photo of flowers. It's cheaper, it's easier, it doesn't require water, but it's not the real thing. 
The one resembles the other, but it differs in dimensionality, uh, dimensionality, size, scope, medium, etc. Even in the case of an art forgery, no matter how good it is, it is always only a replica, a likeness of the original. It is not the original. Likewise, the image bearers of God are not God. We are distinct from God. We are creatures, made things, entities which were formed by him. This is not nearly as trivial as it sounds. In fact, we shall explore uh, uh, more fully in a few weeks. This very important point is exactly where Adam went wrong. He lost sight of the fact that though incredibly valuable, incredibly important, he was not God. Acceptance of that reality was at the very core of God's prohibition at Eden's tree. We cannot be God's image bearers except that we are not God. Humans are creatures. But that takes us right into our second point. We are not mere creatures. If our status as image bearers makes us distinct from God, it also makes us distinct from all other creatures. Man and only man is cast in God's likeness. This summer, I saw ads for a show coming out this fall, it was, I saw the ads in the summer, the show came out this fall, I think it was on ABC, and it was a, I don't remember the, the name of the show, it was an animal series in which scenes of animal activity were going to be given voices by the actress Helen Mirren, and I don't remember, like I said, I don't remember the name of it, but the advertising struck me for this reason, it stressed how the show would reveal the ways in which animals were far more like us than we ever imagined. Well, duh, when you give a squirrel a human voice, when you give a squirrel a human personification, when you pretend that its life is our life, when you speak on behalf of the squirrel, well, yes, it sounds like a human being, because we're hearing Helen Mirren, a human being, not the squirrel. The show begs the question. It bestows upon animals anthropomorphic traits and turns around and says, look, they're like us. A rat is a pig is a dog is a boy only if you superimpose that presupposition onto things. For crying out loud, rats and pigs and dogs and Helen Mirren squirrels aren't having the identity crisis they've never had, are not having and never will have the identity crisis we humans are having precisely because we are human. The very fact that we're debating our place in creation shows that we're different because no other creature is having the debate. It's an astounding thing. Humans are creatures, but we are not mere creatures. We are not like rats and pigs and dogs and Helen Mirren's squirrels. We are not God, but we are not mere animals either. We are creatures which bear a resemblance and a likeness to our creator. So let's take a look at the ways that's true. 
And again, we're going to go fairly quickly through these, many of which are going to be developed in the coming weeks and months. So how does man bear the image or the likeness of God? Creativity is one example. Our God is a creator God, and we are creative beings. We do not create out of nothing as he did. We start with his raw materials. But for all the beauty and strength of a spider's web, no community of spiders has ever come up with a creative way to link those together to span the Chesapeake Bay. The Bay Bridge is a creative act of mankind. We are creative as our creator was creative. There is a morality to humans which is like the image of God. Miss Newkirk's statement, a rat is a pig is a dog is a boy, was meant to level the playing field, as she put it later, to put all living creatures on the same plane. The Bible rejects this, and ironically, so too does Miss Newkirk. She and PETA never seem to have a problem when a lion eats rats, pigs, dogs, or for that matter, boys. But if that boy grows up to eat bacon, anathema, somehow the rat and pig and dog and boy are equal right up to the time the boy acts upon that equality. PETA is predicated upon the underlying belief that humans have a moral responsibility. And at that point, scripture agrees. We do have moral responsibility. But no one anywhere holds rats and pigs and dogs to the moral standards of the boy. Nor do apes hold each other morally accountable as we do. Human beings, even atheistic human beings, are incurably moral creatures. We may pervert that morality. We may turn it upside down and inside out. We may call good evil and evil good. But we cannot bring ourselves to simply stop making those judgment calls. We have a real problem with God being the moral standard. But we have no problem with there being a moral standard. We are moral creatures because we were created in the image of a moral. We are volitional creatures. In fact, some philosophers have defined humanity on that basis alone. We make choices. To be a human is to be a chooser. We have a will and we can act upon it. We do not act merely upon instinct as our animals do. Again, the irony here is rich. The atheistic evolutionist would have us believe that whatever fosters the continuation of one's DNA, well, that is instinctually built in. It is unavoidable. And thus, in our society, the cheating husband has become increasingly justified because he is simply doing what evolution has made him to do, pass along his DNA. But isn't it interesting dare think about applying that same standard to those who are sexually aggressive and violent. And society will come down on your head with an iron fist. Rightfully so, by the way. We too should stand up against sexual violence. But there's no atheistic reason to do so. But there is a reason. 
we understand that we are not creatures of instinct. We are not driven merely by natural uh, desires. We have volition. We can make choices. We are created in God's image that we are given dominion. God exercises dominion throughout the creation account, most obviously in his acts of naming. And he in turn gives dominion to man. And next week we will see symbolically he gives to man the right to name all the creatures. We alone have that dominion among God's creation. Again, this is acknowledged even among atheists, bovines. You know, bulls and cows, we usually call just cows, but some of them are male out there. Those big animals out in the field, they emit enormous amounts of methane gas. Methane is a powerful greenhouse gas trapping sunlight as heat in our atmosphere. But strangely, no environmentalist ever seems to appeal to the cows to solve the problem. It is the farmers and ranchers who are expected to exercise dominion and reduce methane production by their cows and bulls. Cows and bulls don't even have dominion over themselves, we recognize. But we're expected to have dominion over them. Again, a lot more on that in the weeks to come. Work is another way in which we were created in the image of God. God is a worker God. He works even after his work of creation. And we, uh, we read about his rest last week. Nevertheless, he continues to exercise his external, uh, external, eternal decree through providence. He is still at work in this world and God made us to work. We must never miss this fact. God put us in Eden before the fall, before sin was in the world, while everything was still perfect and good. He put us in Eden to work the garden. Work is not a consequence of the fall. Complications in our work, headaches in our work, those are a consequence of the fall. But we are created to work. When you tend your flower bed, paint your shutters, pull the weeds, engineer aerospace parts, rehabilitate blown out knees, when you work, you exercise God's image in you. How does Paul say it to the Corinthians? So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. We procreate. God made people And then he told us to make people. In procreation, we are like God. Again, more on that in a couple of weeks. Socially, we are created in the image of God. In two weeks, we will read where it says, And God said it is not good for the man to be alone. Just as God has fellowship within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, so too he made us persons that we might enjoy fellowship. There is a social aspect to man with each other and with God. We are like God in our personal capacity for fellowship. Those are the ways in which we are like God in terms of our being and our existence. Let's look a little bit now about the practical implications of that. How does the reality of the Imago Dei, or how ought the reality of the Imago Dei, play out in our lives? First of all, human life is sacred. 
capital punishment was given to protect the image of God. But due process also protects the image of God. Should not the one who is accused have his image protected so he is not falsely condemned? Abortion bans protect God's image, his image in the fetus, but so also his image in the woman. She ought not become an image killer, for she is an image bearer herself. We must advocate for abortion bans, but not with vehemence and aggression, not with vindictiveness or superiority, but with great compassion for the very woman who will be most directly affected. The Imago Dei is as alive in her as it is in her fetus. And frankly, public health measures protect God's image. Out of respect for the image of God in you, I should protect your life and health. From our church's own constitution, we read this. Catechism question number 68, what is required in the sixth commandment? The answer The Sixth Commandment requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. The Imago Dei means we ought to protect human life. But the Imago Dei is not merely a death averter. It is not merely a death avoidance measure. It should lead to a richer appreciation of human beings. The Imago Dei should not lead us to an attic attitude toward people. What do I mean by an attic attitude? You know what it is. You have those things. They're just important enough that you don't throw them away. But they're stuck up in the attic and you never actually enjoy them. We cannot treat people that way. The image of God should not be treated with an attic attitude. Well, I didn't kill anybody. And I voted for abortion bans, so I'm good. The image of God must be treasured and appreciated. If you had a Monet or a Rembrandt, would you stick it in your attic simply to avoid destroying it? Human life is to be cared for actively. It is just and righteous thing to advocate for the poor. The Bible, particularly the prophets, call us to this over and over and over again. They are God's image bearers. It is a just and righteous thing to protect victims. Movements to stop human trafficking must be supported. And while you may not relate well to the particular celebrity who is at this moment saying, me too, still, can we not stand with her effort to stop sexual violence? She is a divine image bearer. And the politics of the Black Lives Matter movement are fraught with abominations. But that phrase is not. Black Lives Matter. Can we not find a way to reject the politics while embracing God's image in those whose skin is Ethiopian black, Mexican brown, Arabian olive, or Norwegian white? And in yourself, 
Do you protect the image of God in yourself? What about your health? And at this moment, if I may be the pot speaking to the kettles, do we understand that we have been created in God's image? Paul reminds us that our bodies are the place wherein Christ lives and therefore we must treat them a certain way. Do we recognize that as the image bearers of God, we have an obligation to him to take care of his image in us? Do not run yourself down while I'm just so stupid. Yes, we all make stupid decisions in a moment at a time, and acknowledging the stupidity of that decision in that moment at the time is the only right thing to do, but that is very different than stupidity becoming our motto, the constant way we think of ourselves. We must not run down the image of God, even in ourselves. There is so much more which could be said about this. But here's the point. We, human are God, we humans are God's seminal creation, the zenith of his divine handiwork, created in his image. Thus, we are not God's. But very importantly and significantly, we are not mere creatures, special creatures who are divine image bearers. So there are two more practical, important consequences of the Imago Dei. And with this, we close. That image did not survive unscathed, unaltered, unmarred. The Imago Dei suffered damage in the fall, and it needs to be burnished and restored. We are like defaced paintings. The original masterpiece is still there, but the work of uncovering it is a painstaking effort. Brothers and sisters, the struggle of your sanctification is the struggle of a master art restorer. The exhaustion you feel battling against sin ought actually be an encouragement to you. The divine restorer thinks you worthy of the effort. He treasures his handiwork in you, even if you don't. Restoration is slow, agonizing work. That's what you're undergoing as you wrestle and struggle with the sin in your life. Think about how restoration works. That restorer, when unsure if a little fleck of cobalt blue belongs to the original or to the graffiti, what does he or she do? Look at a photo of the original to determine whether or not that speck belongs there. And so it is with us. We turn to a photo of the original, an exact representation. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. The one Paul says, whose image we shall bear, 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 15. Because he, according to the author of Hebrews, is the exact representation of God in whose image we were originally created. And that brings us to our final point. 
We can set aside all the literary analysis and all the metaphysical debate, all the questions of environmental responsibility, all the accusations of speciesism or egotism. If you want proof that humanity possesses enormous intrinsic worth, God the Father sent the Son to redeem us at the cost of his own life. That's a testament to our value your value while you were yet sinners. The image of God defaced by your defiance. Christ died for you. If actions speak louder than words, let that be the final statement about your worth in God's eyes. Amen? Amen.